We're going to miss Sue Ellen around here. She's um, on her way this summer to Eastern Europe to sing a little sanctified rock and roll in uh, the streets. We need to be praying for her that people will be drawn to the Lord as a result. Turn to the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews. We've got our work cut out for us this morning. We're going to try to cover this entire chapter. I want you to keep in mind the Romanians while we're uh, studying this chapter who are willing to sit for three hours. <laughs> now we will be done at 12. Close to 12. So, some of you may know the name of Gutzon Borglum, who, by the way, is an Idaho native. I just discovered that this last week who is the artist and sculptor responsible for the figures of uh, Washington and Lincoln and Jefferson and and Theodore Roosevelt at uh, Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. I can still remember as a boy standing on the observatory across from those uh, four faces and being awed by the magnitude of that uh, project. It's a truly awesome sculpture. Uh, Borglum was suspended over that rock about 500 feet from the valley floor working with a group of other sculptors. They used everything from chisels to dynamite to uh, shape those four visages. I understand uh, from his biographer at some point his maid was taken to view the project. She'd followed the progress of it uh, from a distance, but she was taken uh, to stand at the foot of the mountain at Mount Rushmore and look up at those four faces, and uh, she said, as she saw the face of Lincoln begin to emerge, she said to uh, a friend who was standing nearby, uh, tongue-in-cheek, how did Mr. Borglum know that Mr. Lincoln was in that rock? I thought when I read that, uh, so it is with us. Our Lord takes the hardest, most uh, resistant stuff of which we're made and begins to turn it into something that he envisions. He sees the face of of the Lord himself in us and he he begins to turn us to look more and more like our Lord. That's that's his craftsmanship. He just loves to get his loving creative hands on us and make something out of us. When we come to him, that's what he begins to do. We're his workmanship, created Four good works in Christ Jesus. I'd like to begin by reading the benediction with which this chapter concludes, verse 20. It's a very well-known, it's a very well-known benediction. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant, that's that new covenant we've been we've been reading about in the book of Hebrews. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The first phrase of those two verses is the story of Hebrews. Hebrews is all about the God of peace who brought through the blood of the eternal covenant our Lord Jesus into a place of prominence and exalted him. The whole book of Hebrews, as you know, is, is about our Lord and his superiority. He's vastly superior to anything we could ever envision. 
is a better priest, has a better sacrifice, ministers in a better sanctuary, has a better covenant, is better than Moses, better than any angels you could venerate or revere. He, he is the best, absolutely the best. That's the story of Hebrews. The last phrase is the story of our life. He is equipping us with everything good for doing his will and working in us what is pleasing to him. Mount Rushmore is one of our best-known national monuments. Actually, it's a monument to Borglum's creativity and his genius. We are a monument to God's genius and his grace. He's taking that hard, unyielding stuff of which we're made, and he's making something truly beautiful out of it. That's the story of our lives. Now, this, um, this section is filled with commands. I like to look at these imperatives as realities. This is, this is what God is shaping and forming. This is the face that he's making. You look at these commands, and if you don't understand the grace of God and his handiwork, you think, well, you know, I've got to grip my teeth, I've got to clench my jaw, I've got to, I've got to, try, to, hard to try hard to do these things. But what we need to see is that these imperatives are the things that are pleasing to God. And this passage we just read tells us that he's equipping us to do what is pleasing to him. He's at work in us, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So when I read a command, I see that this is what God is making of me. It changes my whole focus on reading the scriptures. This is the product of God's grace and goodness working in me. He's at work to complete what he's begun. And so I want to look at these commands from that vantage point. The people that God are remaking love their brothers. That's the first statement he makes in verse 1. Keep on loving each other as, as brothers. The hallmark of authentic Christianity is that we love each other within the body of Christ. If we love the Father, we're going to love the sons, even the cranky ones. Even the difficult ones, even the obtuse and off the wall, the people that we find it very difficult to relate to. As C.S. Lewis said, the people with squeaky boots, people that sing off key, people that live off key. They aren't heavy, they're our brother. And we, we're to love them. It always grieves me when I see churches splitting and Christians getting divorces and Christians suing each other over things because we're made to be something different. We'll love each other no matter what. The church ought to be one place where people can run for cover, like little children run home when they're battered and when they skin their knees and when life is disappointing. There ought to be some place we can go where people really care about us, where they'll hug us and love us and accept us for what we are because the world is not like that out there. It's a cold old world we live in. Nobody cares. Jesus said, because of the wickedness of many, the love of many will grow cold. And that's the world that we're living in. I think one of the saddest news articles I've ever read was a Washington Post report of an interview with Shirley MacLaine a number of years ago. I think Shirley MacLaine is a marvelous actress, but she is a very confused, mixed-up woman. And she said in response to a question about her love life, 
The only sustaining love involvement I have is with myself. When you look back on your life and try to figure where you've been and where you're going, when you look at your work, your love affairs, your marriages, your children, your pain, your happiness, when you examine all that closely, what you really find out about yourself is that the only person you ever go to bed with is yourself. And that's what I've been doing all my life. That, that's sad. The only person you make love to is yourself. And that's, that's the world we live in. Cold, crass, indifferent to human need. Jesus said the thing that marks us as Christians is that we love each other. The Christians of that era said, behold how they love each other. That ought to be true of us if we're being crafted, handcrafted into his image. Then more and more of that love will, will turn up in our relationships to one another. We'll love the brothers. Second uh, mark of one whom the Lord is marking is that we'll love strangers. That is, people who just show up on your house, at your house and need a place to stay, or people that are traveling through and people we don't know and people that can't repay us and people that aren't, uh, you know, do anything for us particularly, the people that we can do something for. In those days, inns were filthy, immoral places, and traveling ministers, traveling Christians and others that were coming through town needed a place to stay, so we say, entertain them, put, put them up for the day, for the night, whatever it takes to minister to to their needs. In other words, care for people that are outside your safe circle. We all have a cluster of friends that we really like and we're close to and we feel comfortable with. They make us feel good. We're, we always feel better in the company of good people. But we need to reach out to those that can't do anything for us. Remember the incident uh, when we were talking about the miracles, the incident that Luke tells about when... Uh, a Pharisee invited Jesus over for Sabbath uh, supper, and there he was with all the doctors of the law, the up-and-out people, and, and they seated him next to this miserable uh, man who had uh, dropsy. Dropsy is a, a terrible disease. The symptoms are uh, bloating of the extremities, ugly, repulsive appearance. And uh, they, this man was seated right next to Jesus. They wanted to see what he'd do. You know what he did? He hugged him. Luke says he held him, and he healed him. And then he sent him away because he didn't want him to be exposed anymore to this embarrassing situation. And then he turned on the host, and he said, next time you have a party, don't invite your friends and your rich neighbors. Invite the lame and the, and the poor and the weak and the outcasts, because those are the people that God invites to his supper. So uh, if we're being marked by God's grace, if we're being shaped into his image, we'll, we'll care about strangers, those that don't do anything for us. The third mark is that we'll care about the oppressed and the downtrodden and the weak and the oppressed, uh, little men and women that are battered and mistreated, abused, little children unborn children whose lives are being taken away. We'll care about these things. We won't be callous. We're living in a, in a world of escalating carelessness, callousness toward human life when life is cheap. 
But those that God is shaping care about those that cannot care for themselves. Specifically, he's talking about those that are in prison and those that have been mistreated. It's the same word that's used back in chapter 11 of those who had been uh, battered and had their goods taken away and had been flogged and, and falsely accused and mistreated. He uses that word there. So he's probably talking about Christians who are suffering for the name of Christ, but by extension, he's really referring to anyone who can't take care of himself, the helpless, the weak. James says that pure religion is taking care of widows, orphans. That's the mark of someone who's being marked by God's grace. They really care about people that, that can't care for themselves. So we love the brothers, and we love strangers, and we love prisoners and those that are mistreated, and we love our spouses. Verse 4, marriage should be honored by all. Literally, the marriage ceremony, not marriage as an institution, but the actual ceremony. Honor the marriage ceremony. Honor your vows, he's saying. Don't take them lightly. Be loyal to your mate. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge, or literally is judging, the adulterer and, and all the sexually immoral. It's hard to make a good marriage. It takes a lifetime of giving up and giving in and learning how to talk and communicate. I heard last week about a man who said, my wife says I never listen to her. At least I think that's what she said. <clears throat> we all struggle with that, you know, learning to communicate, learning to listen, learning to, to love in our Love our, our spouses, our husbands and, and wives. Live in a world where everything invades against that. All the media keep telling us to get yourself free and that little adultery is uh, it's okay. You'll get home free. But uh, the writer says that adulterers uh, incur the wrath of God. We cannot trivialize this command. It's very serious. Remember Gary Hart? Uh, remember Mr. Trump? Uh, and it's interesting that even the world begins to look askance at people that are unfaithful to their, to their mates. If you want something to help you stay faithful to your wife, read Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 7. It talks about the terrible results that, in, that we incur when we begin to, to be unfaithful to one another. We cannot get away with it. So we need to be loyal to our vows. You know, we, we take, take our mates for better or worse, rich or poor, through sickness or health, until death separates us. You said that. At least I hope you did. I said that. I hope we meant it. If we mean it, then we mean it. We'll do it. We'll hang in there to the very end. No matter what, uh, what, pr- what the pressures are and the difficulties. And we'll be faithful. Those are the marks of someone that God is marking and changing and making into his, into his image. So we'll love the brothers and we'll love strangers and we'll love prisoners and we'll love our mates, but we won't love money. You know, it's interesting. I, I, it occurred to me a couple of weeks ago that uh, whenever Jesus applies truth and talks about the real thing, he almost always applied it 
in two areas. You know, think for a moment. You know what they are? Marriage and money. Real Christianity always shows up in your attitude toward your marriage and your money. That explains some of those seemingly disjunctive applications that Jesus makes when he's talking to the Pharisees about about greed and money, and he just makes this shift into adultery at some point because if we're really serious about our commitment to Christ and if we're really being shaped by his grace, then those are the two aspects of life where our faith will begin to matter. And uh, notice what he says, uh, keep your lives free from the love of money. It's not money that corrupts us, it's loving it. It's wanting more of it, and you don't even have to have a lot of it to love it. As a matter of fact, you can be a materialist and have none of it. These people had been deprived of their goods. They had suffered uh, the confiscation of their property, as Hebrews 10 puts it. They were probably all poverty-stricken. So you don't have to have money to love it. It's you know if you, if, if you think that money is what matters and and you focus on that and you're discontent when you don't have enough of it, then then you love the stuff. And the writer says, don't don't love it. Be content with what you have, because God has said, I will never by any means whatever he uses the strongest negative that can be used in the Greek language. That the NIV is right in putting the never first, because that's the emphasis. I will never, never, never leave you. I will never, never, never forsake you. If you have God, you don't need anything else. He's the one who enriches our our lives. Can't take it with you. As Chuck Swindoll says, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. <laughs> As someone has said uh, that money talks, I can't deny. I heard it once, it said goodbye. <laughs> easy come, easy go is at least half right. You know, you can lose it like that. Either it goes or you go. There's no security, there's no power in money, not in the ultimate sense. But when we have God, we have everything we need. So we can say with confidence, here's the responsible response to what God has said to us. The Lord's my helper. I will not be afraid of what man or mammon can do to me or for me. So if we are being shaped by God, we'll love our brothers and we'll love strangers and we'll love prisoners and we'll love our mates and we don't love money and we, and I love this section, we will love our leaders. (laughs) Wonderful. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider, literally reflect upon the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, of whom is he speaking? Well, I think he's talking about their former leaders. They, the way it's put indicates that these leaders were no longer around. They used to speak the word to you. Of whom is he talking? I think he's talking about the apostles. The apostles, perhaps, that planted this church. The apostles that ministered to this church. And what was the outcome of their life? Well, they either ended up in jail or dead. By this time, several of the apostles were dead, and, and most of the rest of them were in prison. Peter and Paul were still seen to be uh, at large, but most of them, were, you know, the outcome of their life was martyrdom. He says, remember, they spoke the word of God to you. Imitate their faith, not imitate 
the way they believe, but rather imitate their system of belief. What did they believe? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you see the connection of that verse? They came to you and they preached Christ. And the Christ that they preached to you is the Christ that you worship yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. The gospel never changes. The word about Christ is never altered, modified, updated. It is always the same gospel. The gospel is not progressive. We do not add to it. We go back. We go back to the apostles and what the apostles taught us. So somebody comes knocking on your door and say, I, I just, uh, there's another manifestation of Jesus. Don't believe him. He was manifest once, the writer of Hebrews says, for all time. Now I say, what you need to do is recall what those former leaders, those apostles, whose writings we now have in this book, the New Testament, what they said to you about Christ. And remember, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, feed on him. Now, I I want you to note how he goes about approaching this, this matter. For those of us that are not Jewish in our background... A little hard for us to follow. Let me, let me try to explain. Verse 8 and verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. A lot of heterodoxy, a lot of heresy was creeping into the church. People were coming and saying, we have an update on the gospel. The writer says, no, no, no. no. You, you go back to what the apostles said. There are no updates. There's no new revelation. You go back. And don't be waylaid by these, uh, these bogus teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods, that is, the bodies of sacrificed animals, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who now minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, let me try to explain what he's saying. The priesthood was still functional at that date. I've mentioned this is before 70 AD. The temple had not yet been destroyed Priests were still uh, carrying out their duties in, in the temple. It was their practice by law and one of the perquisites of the priesthood uh, to eat the bodies of those animal sacrifices in which the bodies were not wholly consumed. Some sacrifices involved uh, the uh, we call the Holocaust. The, uh, the entire body was consumed. Others were not. And uh, if the body was not sacrificed, if the blood of the, of the lamb was only shed and a portion of that lamb was offered, then the priests would eat the food. That was their right and privilege as priests. They would take the food from the altar where they had sacrificed in a symbolic way for the sins of the people, and they would consume that body themselves. I imagine some of these priests were saying, the Jewish priests of that day were saying to Christians, remember these were Jewish Christians who had come out of, the, out of Judaism and had embraced Christ. They were saying, you, you guys are the saddest of all sorts of people because you've got no temple, you've got no sacrifice, you've got no altar, you've got no priesthood. And the Christians were saying, we do too, we do too. We have a temple. It's, uh, it's the, the, the body of Christ. That's where we worship. When God's people get together, we are the temple of God. We do have a sacrifice. It's the once-for-all sacrifice which our Lord made on the cross. We do have a priesthood. It's all of us guys. We, we're part of the priesthood of, 
of believer. And you notice what he says? We do too have an altar. The altar was the place where our Lord was sacrificed. And we do too get to eat from that sacrifice. We get to eat and drink of Christ. That's our nourishment. See, he says the food that, that you, you fellows eat, it's of no value. You know, it may, it may, slack, it may, it may uh, uh, swage your hunger initially, but it's of no spiritual value. But we have one on whom we feast day after day after day who is our resource for living. Now, are we doing that? <laughs> I still remember Dr. Jack Mitchell uh, when he would lecture at, at Dallas Seminary, leaning over the pulpit and saying, are you boys reading the Bible? And here we were studying the Bible, you know, 12, 15, 18 hours a day. And, and he wanted to be sure we were reading the Bible in the sense that we were feeding on Christ, not just doing exercises, but looking beyond the page into the Lord's face and eating and drinking of him, worshiping him, relying upon his, his resources. That's yeah, another mark. Of the one that God is shaping. You have a hunger for spiritual things. You want to know God more intimately. And you hunger and thirst after after him. As Jeremiah put it. Thy words were found. And uh, I did eat it. And your words are the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Is that true of us? Now if you're going to do that. It, you, may, you may incur some difficulty. Some of you are coming out of homes where. Your Christian faith is not highly regarded. Some of you had to break with institutions, uh, churches, and, and cults that had a grip on you and your family and the whole community. And to step outside of that culture into the church was a very, very difficult thing for you. And, and that's what he goes on to, uh, to comment upon, verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Animals were offered in the temple area or in the tabernacle area before they built the temple, but the bodies were taken outside because they were they were desanctified when they bore sin. So since they were unhallowed, they had to be taken outside the camp and burned. So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. You see the analogy he's making to our Lord and to the animals. Jesus was taken outside the city. They didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't want him around. They didn't want him in their city. So they took him outside the city gates of Jerusalem and they crucified him on Golgotha, which then was outside the city. Today it's inside the city walls, but then it was outside. And they buried him out there because they didn't want anything to do with him. So do you follow the argument? If you're going to worship our Lord, you're going to have to go outside the camp. You have to step outside of Judaism, which means you're going to leave behind your friends and neighbors and, and maybe your fiancé. Maybe your husband won't understand. Your wife won't understand. Your children won't understand. Your community won't understand. You have to go out there and bear that shame with him. But our Lord himself first bore the shame on your behalf. Then he returns to this matter of leadership. You'll notice that the section is bracketed by reference to leaders in 7 through 17. Now I think he's referring to present leadership. Verse 7 goes back to the former leadership, the apostles. Now those that presently 
are leading. Obey your leaders. Obey your shepherds. The word for obey here is a word that literally means to yield. The contrast is to uh, resist. Saying get off their backs and get on their team. Align yourself with them and submit to their authority. Now let me explain where the authority of your leadership comes from. Your elders, your teachers, leaders, men and women who function as leaders here in this, in this church. We have no authority to command. We have no authority to dictate our demand. That's why in this whole matter of the building program, you know, we, we, we had no right to stand up here and say, God has told us to, that you're to give and then to impose some burden on you to, to give. It's not our right. It's not our privilege. We can't do that. Our authority is the authority to declare what God has said. That's all we can do. We cannot go beyond what God has said. We cannot say less than what God has said. Our authority is the authority to declare the word of God. It makes no difference what body of Christ you're in or who your leader or what segment of the body or who your leadership is. We are to submit, yield to our to our leaders to the extent to which they are declaring to us the word of God. Our following ought always to be responsible. We don't follow anybody who says they're they're in a position of leadership or someone who bears the title of leadership necessarily. Uh, Paul or Luke rather referred to uh, those that were in the city of Berea in Greece as more noble than those that that were in Thessalonica because while they received the word with readiness, they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. And he was talking about the things that the Apostle Paul had taught. Paul went to Thessalonica, and apparently people just, you know, they just said, oh, that's great, we believe it. They went to Berea, and they said, whoa, wait a minute, Paul, show us where it says that in the Old Testament. See, because Paul's authority as an apostle was not yet established. And uh, that's the kind of responsible uh, following that we're to engage in. If someone comes and, and they announce to you a truth, you need to, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. show that to me in the Bible. If it's in the Bible and it's clear to me there, then yes, I'm to submit. But uh, I've got to see it. See, there's a kind of nobility, spiritual nobility, about searching the Scripture for yourself, not not being gullible, not easily gulled and and uh, and led astray. Have to be responsible. And, and I see another mark here of one whom God is shaping. We're submissive to the Word when the when the word of God is preached, we take it seriously. We believe it. We listen to it. Uh, we are, uh, the, those who lead us are described as those who keep watch over you. That's a pretty awesome task that your leadership has to care for your immortal souls. No leader is responsible for the choices that you make, but they are responsible to faithfully declare the word of God. Uh, the word they use is for keep watch is a word that literally means to lose sleep. So it's a rather awesome task that they have. Furthermore, they must give an account. They cannot really ad hoc their way through life. They, they themselves are subject to authority. No one ought to have authority who is not subject to authority. If we cannot be ruled, then we have no right to rule. Uh, we should obey them or listen to them, yield to them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden for that would be of no advantage to you. Joyless, burdened, 
beleaguered leaders are of no good to anyone, least of all to themselves. So to make their task easy, the writer says, let's, uh, let's listen to them. Don't give them flack. To the extent to which they are teaching the scriptures, listen to them and follow them. doesn't mean you can't walk into their office and say, I have some trouble and I'm feeling awkward about a certain thing you're doing. I'd like to talk to you about that. You have the right to question or challenge uh, any interpretation of Scripture, but once we've discerned that our leadership is on target biblically, we should submit to them. Again, it's one of the marks of those that God is, is marking with his instruments. He concludes with some personal words. Uh, pray for us. We're sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. That word desire struck me this this time, for the, for the first time, I realize that this author himself doesn't feel like he has it all together. Uh, he's desiring to live honorably, but he realizes that sometimes uh, he falls short. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. And then some final words at the very end. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of encouragement. That uh, phrase, word of encouragement, is actually a technical term for a sermon, which is what led me as I pointed out in the introduction, to conclude that this was originally given as a sermon, which was taken down perhaps in shorthand and then uh, was uh, distributed to other churches uh, with a beginning and end that made it more of a letter. Uh, He says, I have written you only a short letter, and that's relative, and actually is not too long. It takes about an hour to read. That's pretty good length for a sermon. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. Timothy apparently was one of those that have been imprisoned for his faith. If he arrives soon, I will come to him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Claudius, the emperor, had expelled all the Jews from Rome, and it's probably to these that he refers. Grace be with you all. That sounds like Paul, doesn't it? Grace be with you all. But uh, Paul didn't write this. I want to read again the benediction. And I leave this with you. This is his benediction and and it's mine. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see what he's saying? Do you know what he's doing? He's giving you the grace to love your brothers, to love strangers, to love your mates, not to love money, to love your leaders, to love the Word, to look through the Word and see the Lord. He's shaping and making and forming and creatively doing something to you that's making you more and more like what he sees that you're to be, what's pleasing to him. Paul put it another way in Ephesians 2. He said, we are his workmanship. I love that term. The, 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 the word for workmanship is the word from which we get our word poem. Poema is the word. It was used in that day of, of, of something very creative, something that an artist does. And that's what God is doing to us, for us making something beautiful out of us, something utterly creative, something you could never imagine. Paul says you could never dream it. Or in your wildest imagination, realize what God is making out of you.
That's what he came to do. That's what he's doing.